might turn to Galatians. We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the church at Galatia in this hour. Just so you know, uh, in, in, our, in the next session, we're going to be talking about, uh, from Ephesians, talking about what the church is really all about, what Christianity is about. And uh, in the busyness of our spiritual pursuit, sometimes we lose sight of, the, of what it's all about. And that's what we'll talk about in the next session. But right now, we want to look at what God would say to churches that are straying. Uh, it, it, it's a problem that we face as we think about the religious world in general, of so many churches believing and practicing different things to, become, to begin to be critical of one another Put us in a bad light, particularly in our, our culture of let everybody do what they want to do and don't say anything. And uh, yet we see in the scripture that there is a need to, to follow the Lord. So how do, we, how do we deal with that kind of a situation? What we want to do is look at, at in this letter, an example of what God would say to, to churches that he believes that are straying and moving away from the truth. It's interesting also to notice in Galatians the kind of things that God is reacting to in this admonition. We have to look at it quickly because we're looking at all of Galatians, so we'll just notice some important points. Now, when you think about Galatians, I don't know what you might remember, but what jumps out, jumps out at me is in chapter 1, we've got the instruction about, about if anyone preaches any other gospel than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And he says it again. And then at the end of the book of Galatians, there is the list of the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. In the middle of the book of Galatians, there is that statement that is often quoted about we're baptized into Christ, and that's when we put on Christ, and that's how we're children of God. So there's three different verses from three different, the beginning and the end and the middle, three different places in the book. I wonder what those three things have to do with each other. They're all in the same letter. And we might think, that, well, he's just talking about different things, and those happen to be in the letter as, as, he, as he talks about the importance of the gospel, the importance of baptism, and the importance of doing the works, uh, the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. That's really not the case. They are strongly connected. And I hope that we see that as we look at the lesson this morning and what God is going to say about, uh, say, two churches that are drifting. As we look at the first chapter and the first things he's going to talk about, in particular in verses 6 through 9, after he says his hellos and greetings in 1 through 5, he then starts very abruptly to deal with what is a very significant matter. And we hear this urgency of his message when he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say it now again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek the pleasure of men? For if I still please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. As you look at this, and remember, this is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing from God. He is writing to churches that, have not been in existence for very long. They've recently heard the gospel. There has been that controversy that came out of Jerusalem about circumcision. But that was settled, wasn't it? In Acts chapter 15, wasn't that settled? 
Wasn't there a letter written? Wasn't that letter circulated? You know, we believe sometimes that once a matter's been settled, it's settled. Well, the gospel's telling us that it's never settled. It's never settled. As long as people want to do what they want to do, as long as people begin from their own perspective and pursue what they believe is important, there's going to be this kind of controversy and there's going to be this kind of dissension. And as I said the last hour, how we deal with that is what's important. And we've got in the letter of Paul to the churches of Galatia an example of what ought to be done. We're going to notice his points of interest as we hit these high points through his letter. Here in chapter 1, the first thing he says is basically that there is one message. There is one gospel. There is one gospel in this one message, and it has all of the authority. There is no other authority, and it is for all time. Now, those are pretty significant assertions. Let's notice them in the text. He says, I marvel that you're turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he says, there really isn't another gospel. There is just the one. There is not another. That is merely a perversion. But another thing of significance is that when you move away from this doctrine, from this teaching, what are you really moving away from in verse 6? You're moving away from him. Now, people want to separate. Well, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm not worried about the teaching. Follow Christ. I'm not worried about the doctrine. But here, clearly, when you change the doctrine, you move away from the teaching, you're moving away from Jesus Christ, the one who calls you unto salvation. So we see this, the significance that he's attaching to whatever this particular problem is. There is no other gospel, he says in verse 7. These are just those who trouble by changing the gospel. They're troubling you. But there is only one authority because Paul says, the we apostles, that would be the we, or an angel from heaven, that would be what appears to be divine authority, but it's not really God talking, it's some other spirit, some other heavenly being. We see the, are angels really going to, are they really the source of false teaching in the New Testament or now? I think this is a little bit like what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I give all my possessions to feed the poor and give my body to be burned. There's just not many people doing the first of the two. And there's certainly not anybody that's doing the second of the two, offering themselves to be burned. But it, he is expressing uh, this hyperbole. He's saying, even if an angel from heaven brings a doctrine that's different from the one you've heard, let him be accursed. There is no other source of truth. And that's his point. There is no other source of revelation. And as we notice this, we also see that it is already a settled matter. People want to suggest that the gospel is evolving and changing, and that's why there's differences. That's why we keep adjusting and, and altering things, because the gospel is evolving. At whatever the date this letter was written, and I take it fairly early, but let's let it be late, let's let it be even 60 AD, it's 30 years at the most after the gospel was first preached. And what Paul says when he writes this letter is if there's any preaching that is different from what, what has already been preached. Notice the verb tense. It's already done. It's already been preached. If you hear something new, it can't be right. And then he adds to it, he changes a little bit when he says, or if you hear something that you have not received. In other words, those brethren have heard everything there is to hear. Everything that needs to be preached has already been preached. You understand that? There is nothing new. That was true already when Paul wrote Galatians, which is really ironic because obviously he's still revealing stuff. When he says that in Galatians chapter 1, 
well, he's still going to write chapter 2, 3, 4, 5. Isn't that more revelation? Paul is saying that there's not even going to be anything new in it. And there's not. There's no new gospel in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. Because what Galatians is, is a call for brethren to go back to what they'd already heard. To go back and conform to what they'd already been taught. There's no new revelation, even though the Spirit is still guiding Paul to write this latter chapters of Galatians and whatever other letters might come after Galatians. The point is, the revelation's been made. You've got the truth. There is nothing else. Do we understand the finality of the gospel? The authority of the gospel. The permanence of the gospel. That's it. This is it. And that's what the apostle said in the first century. And so surely there's no changes coming today. And we need to understand the nature of this powerful statement of Paul in, in verses 6 and 7. Spending a little bit extra time on these early verses because this is where the groundwork is laid. We won't go this slow all the way through the book. But as we keep reading into verse 10, he raises a significant issue and this is what he wants us to see clearly. That if we're going to seek in our Christianity to please the Lord, then it ought to be obvious who we listen to. In verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. He says, so which is it? And the idea of persuading men or persuading God, we think in terms of persuading men to follow the truth. But that's not the sense in which the English word persuade is being used here. If we want to call for the goodwill of men, think about God in that regard. If we want to persuade God, we'll be persuading God. But that's not the idea. We are calling for God's goodwill, for His good favor. We want to act in a way that He is pleased. If we want to please men, and that's what he says in the next line, then we do what men want us to do. If we want to please God, then you do what God wants you to do. And how do we know what God wants us to do? We've got to hear it from the Lord. This is just so simple. It is so clear. But this is fundamentally the rule that will solve the issue of division in religion. If there's any digression, any change, any controversy, any wondering about what ought to be done, we come to this attitude and this philosophy in Galatians 1, 6 through 10, and we've got the clear path. This is what God says to churches that are straying, that are easing gently away in some minor way from the truth that's already been revealed. This is what the text says to do. In order to emphasize this idea, because the whole issue then becomes the source of the message. You see, that's, that's, if, if, if this is the message from God, then this is what we've got to do. It's settled. And so then the question becomes, well, can we really trust this? Is this really from God? And that's the issue today. You know, that's why there's so much discussion about lost gospels, so much discussion about Paul's opinions and the controversy between Peter and Paul, and how that, you know, these are just men with their own opinions. You see, if this is from God, we've got to do what it says. And so what we've got to do is undermine the, the authority of that message by questioning its source. You think that's a new problem? That's the very thing the apostles start to deal with right here in the verses that follow. He says in verse 11, I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel that was preached by me is not according to man. It, he's addressing that issue. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, this message that I have taught you is God's Word. If it's God's Word, then we do it. 
but are we sure it's God's Word? And so Paul makes the assertion in verses 11 and 12, and then he starts talking about why you should believe that to be the case. And we won't read and study this part, but if you look at verses 13 through 24, Paul talks about the story of his conversion, and how that immediately upon his conversion, he did not go to Jerusalem and hang out with the apostles and get their take on things and kind of assimilate what they had learned and what they knew. He says, I didn't go to Jerusalem. He talks about where he went, and he went out in the wilderness. I was unknown by faith to the churches in Judea. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And so finally, 14 years later, get that 14 years later, 14 years later I come, and I preach to them, those Christians in Jerusalem, the same gospel that I had been preaching. You see, the journeys have already been going on. That I preached previously to the Gentiles. And guess what? They praise God that I'm preaching the gospel. I was preaching the same thing they were preaching. But I didn't spend any time with them. I didn't learn it from them. How do you explain the similarities in our teaching? That we're teaching the same gospel. Easy. I went into the wilderness and I got it from the Lord. My message did not come from men. I did not even learn it from the apostles. And so Paul deals with the, the source of the message which is so significant. And it's interesting to notice in chapter 2 that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. He makes reference to those who seem to be something in the church in verse 6. Or those who, in verse 9, who seem to be pillars in the church. And what he's basically saying is, that doesn't mean anything. Who these people are is nothing. The source of the message that is taught is everything. And so as we try to settle our controversy. You know, the who's who in the brotherhood doesn't mean a lot. Excuse me. It doesn't mean anything. It's what does the Scripture say? What does the text tell us? That's what Paul is emphasizing. He was not at odds with James or Cephas or John, but a little bit later he does have to mention that I did need to correct Peter. I withstood him to the face because of the errors in his life. Paul says, it's the gospel, people. It's the revelation from God that means everything. And if you're not in it, what did it say back in verses 8 and 9? We're going to be cursed. We've got to teach it, and we've got to practice it. And we see the power that he puts on the Word that is revealed. That that is the source for all that we, that all that we are spiritually. And there's nothing else. Now, obviously, I hit chapters 1 and 2 kind of quickly there. We're going to do the next couple of chapters even quicker. And as we look at... At what comes in chapter 2, verse 3, we notice that circumcision is the key issue that he's going to deal with, and now he starts to talk about that as the specific matter of controversy. In chapter 2, verse 14, he starts talking about that, that, think about it. You, Jewish Christians, you want the Gentiles to keep the law. A law that, number one, you no longer keep, and number two, you didn't keep when you had it. Error is always inconsistent. And he says, look at the evidence that is in the Spirit working. The Spirit that you receive by which you are working miracles. Law or faith? He moves on in chapter 3, verses 6 and following. Talk about Abraham as your father. He is the father to whom you, that you look to as the source of all that you are spiritually. We are the children of Abraham. But what does that mean? Are you children of faith? Don't forget, Abraham lived before the law. We need to be children of Abraham in the faith. He goes on then in verses 15 and following, talk about 
don't get hung up on one part of the plan that has some kind of appeal to us. Make sure that we understand the entire scope of God's revelation. We call that the harmony of the Scriptures, don't we? The whole, the whole revelation. The promises to Abraham. And then 400 years later came the law through Moses. But that was a temporary matter that would bring us to Christ. Understand the entirety of God's plan. As Paul continues to argue his point about the relationship between circumcision and the law and the gospel and where we fit into that today. He then illustrates it further that, that God's use of temporary things. How many times do we try to convince people that when God wanted something one time, that doesn't mean He wants it all the time. Yes, God is unchanging, but that doesn't mean that He doesn't use things temporarily. The Apostle Paul had to press the same argument when he talked about the child that was under the steward for a period, but when he becomes a man, he is in charge of the steward, no longer under the steward. Understand God's use of temporary things. Verses 8 through 20, the Apostle talks about how your behavior betrays you anyway. You don't really want to follow the law. That's not what this is really about. And so often that is the case when we begin to debate doctrinal uh, matters of controversy that things come out that really have nothing to do with the, the doctrine itself. But there are underlying issues and matters that often are more personal. Same pro is any of this new? First century prophet. And he finishes this section in chapter 4, verses 21 and following. He says, are you seeking the flesh or the spirit? And uses Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, and her son Ishmael as compared to Isaac the son of promise, the son of Sarah. The one was the son of the flesh. However you want to interpret that, it was Abraham and Sarah's idea to help God out, to get the job done. And God's purpose was always, in a miraculous way, to bring Isaac, the son of promise, into the world. And our effort to improve on God's plan will always ruin it. And that's what he says here. What are you pursuing? The Spirit is always going to be found in the revelation of God. So having raced through that, I want us to consider something here. You know, doctrinal discussions and debates are not just for the, the apostles and the preachers. This is what Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. He expected them to wrestle with these concepts that are deep and profound and comprehensive. When you read through Galatians 2, 3, and 4, do you get confused? I would expect you to, because I do. But we've got to wrestle with matters and understand the truth that God has revealed. And not think we can just sit back and when the dust settles, try to figure out what's right. Let's get to work in the gospel. But as we look at the conclusion in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, we notice that, that the gospel is always practical. And what God wants to say to churches that are straying is that straying has its practical hurt and it's going to bring about destruction. You can't let it go even for a little thing. What little thing is he talking about? Well, in this context of circumcision, something that was not immoral, something that God expected people to practice for centuries, and something that seems to lead us to Christ. So what could be bad about circumcision as a part, as an inherent part of the gospel? The only thing wrong with it was, it's not a part of the gospel. It never was in the gospel. So don't add it to the gospel. Do you understand that simple reasoning? 
And that's what Paul is suggesting. But as we look at Galatians 5, 1 through 6, he says, you're going to have to make a choice here. You can do what God says, you can do what you think you ought to do. You do what God says, you can do what everybody else is telling you to do. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled by the yoke of bondage. If you do this, verse 2, Christ will profit you nothing. Verse 4, if you do this, you've become estranged or separated from Christ, fallen from grace. This one little issue that is not immoral, that God wanted done for a long time, the only thing we can say against it is it's not in the gospel, will separate you from Christ and teach you of your salvation. That's what we need to understand. You've got to make a choice. You can't do both. We see further then that there's always going to be evil influence and it's to our advantage to open our eyes and see it coming. Look at the language in verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you? Paul could have named the false teachers if he wanted to and there are times when he did that. It's much more effective if we can see it ourselves, isn't it? Paul wants them to answer the question. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Oh, no, we're obeying the truth. Are you doing this? That's not in the truth. Well, we're doing that. If you're doing something other than the truth, along with the truth, guess what? You're not obeying the truth. Because obviously you're doing what you want to do. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Implication? From somewhere else. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The danger of this kind of influence. We've got to be careful that we do all of the gospel and nothing but the gospel. Well, it's important for us to study and to know what Christ teaches. He then talks some more about the danger of that evil influence. Let's drop down very quickly to one more thing I want us to notice. As we consider in verse 16 and following, uh, or 13 and following, that there's no excuses for bad behavior. Here's where we get to the part about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It seems to be often, just kind of an independent essay here on right living versus wrong living. But it's a part of his letter. And it's a part of this whole message. Back up to verse 13. He says, after this discussion of the controversy and the danger and the doctrinal arguments that he presents, in verse 13 he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You see, he's talking to the hearts of the people that he believes will listen. You've been called to liberty. Warning. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity to the flesh. He said, watch yourself here. Watch yourself here. No circumcision. That's not right. You're not supposed to do that. But watch your attitude as you refuse to participate in that. He says, but through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where's this going? Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He starts talking about that conflict. Then he gives some examples of the lust of the flesh, or the works of the flesh. They're evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Everybody, those, yeah, 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 amen, brother. Those are all works of the flesh. But listen to this part of the list. Hatred. Contention. Does this sound like something that would be a part of a religious controversy? And division in the congregation? Hatred. Wrath. Uh, pardon me, start over here. Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath selfish ambition, dissensions, and heresy, and envy. 
think you might see those involved in a religious controversy sometimes. All the time. All the time. And he goes on with the list and talks about murder and drunkenness and revelry and the like. Do any of those things, you can't go to heaven, is basically what it says in verse 21. But the fruit of the Spirit, and notice when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he's really only talking about the things that are the antithesis of those attitudes that are a part of controversy and division. The works of the the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All of those things are absolutely essential to us when we've got a controversy going on, when we're trying to figure out what we ought to do and what we ought not do. Those are the attitudes that we've got to have. And so crucified those passions and desires, that selfish, arrogant, ambitious attitude, and walk by the Spirit, verse 26, and let us be, become, excuse me, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, he's still talking about the controversies there in the middle of, isn't he? If you are right, if you know the truth, and you're fully persuaded that you've got to do just what God says. Watch your attitude. And walk in love, in patience, self-control. So many times people misbehave in a controversy to the harm of the cause of Christ. Standing for the truth turn people away from the truth by ungodly attitudes. That's not just today. That was real then. That's what happens when people argue and fight and get angry with each other. And so in our search for, in our defense of, in our commitment to the truth of God, we've got to walk by the Spirit. And so then he goes on to suggest some other things. We've got to help each other carefully in restoring one another and behave responsibly and see things as they truly are. Do we see those concepts as really things that will, well, aren't those the things that God would say? to churches that are drifting and are involved in some kind of doctrinal controversy. We need to understand that that that's a part of our work as children of God. The Lord does not act like it should never happen. He acts like we ought to behave responsibly and spiritually when it does. Stand for the truth. There will be division. The Lord anticipates it. And so he writes a letter to these churches so we can see how we ought to behave in the middle of that controversy. There's no other gospel. There's only one way. If that doesn't give me permission to be conceited and arrogant and rude and and mean-spirited as I stand for that truth. I hope the studies helped us to, to know how we ought to behave in the most difficult days. Thank you.